0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander and as always I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witz University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus.
1: Good afternoon.
0: And Kobus, just before we get started, I wanted to send a little thank you to all of our listeners who responded to our uh, listener survey. And one was the interesting thing going through the remarks on the survey was that uh, several of you... Uh, asked to talk more about security and Chinese-African military engagement. So we thought in order to address that, we would want to invite one of the top experts in the field, uh, Ambassador David Shin, who is at the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington University. He's a former U.S. ambassador to Ethiopia and Burkina Faso. And uh, Ambassador Shin has just come out with a new, or about to come out with a new, Uh, publication, uh, FOCAC, The Evolving China-Africa Security Relationship. Ambassador Shin, welcome back to the show.
2: Good to be here, Eric
0: and Kobus. Well, just before we get into it, let me kind of just set the stage a little bit for what China's doing in Africa when it comes to military. A lot of people kind of see bits and bobs of headlines that come up, but overall, they don't necessarily understand the true scope of it. So according to your article, Uh, As of January of this year, China has uh, 1,959 military personnel deployed on the continent. The Chinese are participating in seven of nine current peacekeeping operations in Africa. And if I'm correct, that's more than any other permanent member of the UN Security Council. So let me just give a, a little bit of a brief overview of where the Chinese are militarily in Africa. Currently today, there are about 700 combat ready troops in South Sudan as part of a UN peacekeeping mission there and interestingly enough this is the first combat ready deployment that they've done uh, on the continent one of the first that they've done overseas the PLA Navy has been active uh, since uh, I think 2008 in the multinational anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia in the Gulf of Aden Uh, Chinese military medical personnel and engineering staff are currently deployed in both the DRC and Mali with uh, post-conflict operations there the PLA if you recall back in uh, last year Uh, was one of the largest deployments in West Africa to help combat uh, Ebola with about 232 army medical staff that were there. And then also, not not the PLA itself, the army, but it was the People's Armed Police were deployed to Liberia a couple years ago to assist with post-conflict security training there. So the footprint is large, and it appears to be getting larger. Ambassador Shin, let's just kind of start at the high level here. Why... Why are the Chinese expanding their military footprint in in Africa? What are the security threats that are actually confronting them there that would necessitate a greater military presence and and cooperation?
2: Let me first update one figure uh, in terms of their contribution to UN peacekeeping operations in Africa. If you bring it up to the end of May of this year, the the total number has now reached uh, almost 2,700. This is due primarily to the arrival in South Sudan of most of that 700-person combat battalion uh it also includes their their experts and their police uh, who are assigned to UN peacekeeping operations but you can see it's just just since the end of last year it's a a, a growing contribution to peacekeeping uh, i would argue that the uh, the reasons for this um, increasing activity uh particularly in Africa is primarily because of growing Chinese interests in Africa, uh, both uh, economic and political, and particularly the fact that there is a uh, growing uh, Chinese community in Africa. Uh, No one quite knows what the number is of persons of uh, Chinese uh, derivation in Africa, but the estimate is somewhere between one and two million and as you get these uh, growing numbers of chinese actually living in africa they obviously some of them are living in in or near conflict zones and subject to um, uh, possible attacks uh, or getting simply being at the wrong place at the wrong time as we saw in the case of libya where 36000 were evacuated and then uh, last year another thousand evacuated out of libya and then uh, also last year uh, into this year uh, several hundred evacuated out of South Sudan. Uh, so I think the that China's increasingly understanding that they, they have to be um, better informed and potentially in a better position to take uh, proactive uh, actions in order to protect their own interests.
1: Um, Ambassador Shen, over the years it's become this cliché of Chinese foreign policy that they always hew to a non-intervention po- um, policy. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that meant in the past and what has come to mean to me now, how non-intervention itself has evolved over time.
2: Well, that's a very interesting topic and it's it's one uh, about which you can split hairs and get involved in some real semantic arguments as to what is um, non-interference and what is not non-interference. Uh, I think the fact is that uh, China has found, again, because of these growing interests in Africa and the larger Chinese community in Africa, that it has to take, um, it has to be more active than it once was in terms of protecting these interests. So as a result, you've um, you've seen um, China, particularly in Sudan and South Sudan, uh, take actions that perhaps 10 years ago it would not even have thought of taking. Uh, initially, in the case of, of Sudan, it was related to Darfur, and to some extent, pressures from a variety of sources, including some Africans, uh, to be more active in uh, in trying to rein in some of the uh, Sudanese support for um, the Janjaweed in uh, in Darfur, and that resulted in in uh, efforts by China, which had a lot of leverage at the time in Khartoum. Uh, to put pressure on um, President Bashir to accept a an African Union United Nations hybrid peacekeeping force which President Bashir was not inclined to do at the time uh, that is subsequently changed and the action has moved to South Sudan where China has um, considerable uh, oil interests uh, in both Sudan and South Sudan but most of the oil is in South Sudan uh, and also has quite a number of personnel that are operating those facilities and because of the breakdown in security in South Sudan China has found it necessary to engage uh, more actively in efforts to encourage uh, the end of the fighting in South Sudan which means engaging with both sides uh, together with uh, sometimes with Western countries and African countries uh, to try to stop the violence there and again the interest of the particular interest of China would be its uh, its oil interests although I'm sure it is also interested in peace for the sake of peace but I think as a result of of some of these actions uh, even even Chinese scholars are are using uh, different terms in terms of China's policy and and dealing with these conflict situations some talk about creative involvement or constructive intervention um, it's um, it's really quite interesting to see what they're um, how they're referring to these issues. Another scholar, Chinese scholar, says that China is adopting a new approach which combines non-interference with conditional intervention. Uh, that's a quotation. Um, these are are all sort of um, semantical uh, semantical splitting of the hairs. It may be
0: semantical, but it does represent a profound shift in Chinese foreign policy. Uh, I mean, just for those who may not be familiar with the importance of the non-interference doctrine, it was a concept developed by uh, Zhou Enlai, if I'm correct, in the 70s, if, if I recall, and uh, and it's really been the bedrock of Chinese foreign policy for the past four or five decades. Now, with the arrival of Xi Jinping and really this emphasis on military development and a much more aggressive military deployment in, particularly in Asia, in the South China Sea we're seeing, and also in the East China Sea, it seems to be that there's an evolution of the concept of non-interference. And what I found so interesting was that in the announcement for the deployment of the combat troops to South Sudan, there was, it seemed like a slip of the tongue where they said that the troops were being deployed to protect the people and property of the Chinese. Uh, of, of the Chinese, And then they backtracked on that, and they said, no, 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 we're part of the multinational UN peacekeeping operation. And in some ways, it started to have some echoes of what the United States might use to justify military deployments overseas to protect people and property. And I'm just wondering now... You know, if we're seeing as this kind of expansion of Chinese military activity, not just in Africa but globally, um, that that this non-interference concept really is going to be a twentieth century idea that Xi Jinping is going to leave behind.
2: Uh, you may very well be right, and and this is a, an extremely interesting development. Um, the The uh, efforts of uh, of China to deal with um, particularly the aftermath of its engagement in the Gulf of um, of Aden in the anti-piracy operation has caused all sorts of new questions to be raised Uh, once you start uh, sending two frigates and a supply ship since 2008 to the Gulf of Aden on a regular basis and China has announced that it intends to continue that uh, contribution you have to have ways to support the ships and China has found that out and concluded in 2014 a uh, an agreement with Djibouti for the regular uh, not basing but the, the sending of its uh, ships its naval ships into Djibouti for resupply and that has now morphed into an even more interesting conversation uh, about which we don't know the end result but according to the president of Djibouti uh, there are discussions between China and Djibouti on a Chinese uh, naval base in Djibouti. My guess is that uh, whatever ultimately is agreed upon in Djibouti, uh, China will be very clear to make sure it is something less than a base, but it will be more than simply an agreement that uh, permits its naval vessels to access the port of Djibouti. So it'll be very interesting how this plays out, because that's another. A major uh, plank of uh, Chinese foreign policy is no foreign military bases, and I can't imagine that they want to um, have Djibouti become the first one in the world.
1: Well, I, I think one one complicating issue, <clears throat> excuse me, is that there is also, you know, kind of a, kind of a commentariat industry the worldwide looking out for for signs of possible kind of milit- Chinese military expansion. So. You know, kind of you hear lots and lots of discussion about different possible Chinese bases, including the concept of the String of Pearls around the the northern um, Indian Ocean Basin, um, the Djibouti base, whatever the the Djibouti, you know, kind of entity might be, and then also uh, lots of uh, probably unfounded discussion about a possible base in Namibia. Um, How do these... The, the, the kind of excitement and, and perceptions of Chinese military expansion into the rest of the world, how does that influence and, you know, kind of affect the actual Chinese expansion, you know, kind of military expansion, um, you know, kind of how, how do they actually deal with this discussion and these perceptions while also trying to do what they want to do?
2: Well, we of course don't know what is going on inside uh, the PLA uh, and, and the discussions that are taking place there. I, I would not be surprised, but what there is something of a debate going on as to how uh, far you should push the envelope in terms of uh, increasing your military capability outside of Chinese borders. Uh, my, my reading of it is that for the time being there's a reluctance to push it too far. Uh, I don't put much credence in the uh, report about a base in Namibia there's also the the rumors that have been circulating over the last year of uh, a secret uh, airfield being constructed uh, in uh, Zimbabwe uh, f- uh, presumably under the control of China I don't I don't accept that either there may very well be a military uh, base being constructed in Zimbabwe but I suspect it's for Z- the Zimbabwe military uh, the the press of course like, likes to take these stories and run with them, it, um, it sells copy, I think one must be very careful with a lot of them. The one in Djibouti is the most interesting one because this is an actual statement by the president of Djibouti uh, stating categorically or, or uncategorically that uh, there are discussions going on with China over a, um, a naval base there and he actually used the term base. Uh, China has neither confirmed nor denied that report, and if it were totally untrue, I think they would have denied it.
0: Well, let's talk about the neighborhood that you live in right now, which is Washington D.C. You are very well connected with uh, with the folks up on Capitol Hill, and also in the kind of you know national security circles in Washington. There already is a fear in America about China challenging American hegemony. Uh, particularly, what we've seen is in the South China Sea, where the Chinese have said, "Bring it on," and the P-8 flew over those islands, uh, you know, and there was warnings, and there's been this really this standoff. Then we have the cyber kind of threats and attacks going back and forth between the United States and Chinese. So it feels like this talk of an expanding military footprint really feeds into that narrative that China is trying to challenge American hegemony, particularly now in Africa. Uh, you know, So we talk about 2,700 uh, Chinese soldiers in Africa that probably pales in comparison to the number of American forces that are even based maybe at Camp Le Mounier in, in Djibouti. I don't know how many are there. But you know the pulse in Washington. How is this trend that you are writing about in this paper being received in Washington that is hypersensitive to military and security issues, particularly in North Africa?
2: Well, I think, I think we need to unpack that a bit because uh, the what is happening in the South China Sea is, I think, very different up to this point than what is happening in Africa. And you're quite right. Uh, and in virtually all elements of the American government I think there is is real concern about what's going on in the South China Sea the executive branch and the legislative branch when it comes to uh, to Africa I think there's a somewhat different approach here there are elements of the press and there are certainly members of Congress who are uh, paying attention and are quite concerned about what uh, China is doing in these areas. And I think some of what they are concerned about is based on, on inaccurate information or information that certainly has not been verified at a minimum. I think at the executive branch level, there, I sense there's much less concern uh, as to what China is doing up to this point in Africa. For one, there's an appreciation as to what China is doing with UN peacekeeping and the contribution that they're making in the uh, anti-piracy effort in the Gulf of Aden. There are no complaints about that, and there even occasionally is public praise. Uh, I think that the executive branch is watching very closely what is um, happening in in Djibouti, and you're quite right, the United States has its only military base in Africa, in Djibouti, with about 4,000 personnel, both military and civilian, Uh, You also have a a French uh, military facility in Djibouti with, I think, 1,500 personnel. And you even have a Japanese uh, military facility in Djibouti with about 200. So if if China were to set up some very modest facility there that it could uh, define as being less than a base, uh, probably the U.S. government would not get terribly exercised about it, although there may be members of Congress and the press that do.
0: Kobus, let me put the question to you about how you think it's being interpreted on the continent. And I and I'm gonna to refer to Deborah Braudigam. and you know, she has this kind of saying that China is the old is the blind man and the elephant. You get to see exactly what you want in this relationship. So I can see people, and on our Facebook page we've seen it time and time again, saying anytime there's a Chinese military engagement in Africa, with mostly on UN peacekeeping, they say, There you go, this is the neo-imperialism, they're coming to take over. Then you probably have other people which are saying, well, it's great that there's deploying engineers and medical personnel to Eastern Congo, to Mali, and they're doing stabilization operations in Sudan. How do you think, from your vantage point in South Africa, the perception of a greater Chinese military footprint in Africa is being received?
1: um i think as as far as i've seen is it was generally perceived um positively because it's almost always you know always so far kind of couched within multilateral institutions like the un um and clearly responding to a a, a clear problem like you know kind of the crisis in south sudan so um so it it so far i haven't i haven't seen it c- condemned or decried that much you know kind of except for the odd kind of internet commenter I think what's, what's you know, what you also have to take in mind is that, you know, from an African perspective so far, the Chinese military presence, while growing, is still quite small. Um, so I think there isn't, you know, that much attention being paid to Chinese military presence compared to a, for example, you know, kind of growing American drone strikes or, you know, kind of other military um, engagement, and also just the the general presence of Chinese people. Um you know, kind of Chinese migration to Africa is a much bigger story in, in, in Africa than is Chinese military engagement in Africa because it's still happening quite, you know, kind of quite selectively. And people can see um, it on the
0: ground. They see those Chinese workers. Exactly. And, yeah.
1: exactly. So, you know, so, so that, that's, that's the, the number one interface for with, with China is with Chinese people who actually move to Africa. And I actually wanted to ask Ambassador Shin how he thinks... Um, you know, kind of this the, this kind of mass migration is going to change Chinese military influence. I mean, you know, so far the, they've had to evacuate Chinese citizens from Libya twice, as you mentioned. Um, and one of the big problems is that migration is, you know, kind of is happening frequently with the, the embassies not really being able to track where these people are. Um, it's it's you know, it's it's a big logistical issue for them sometimes to keep to keep track of Chinese citizens and and particularly exactly where in rural areas living. Um, how do you foresee, you know, Chinese foreign policy being affected by this in the future in Africa?
2: Well, first off, I, I agree with everything you just said about the issue of uh, the growing uh, Chinese uh, presence and communities in Africa. That is by far the bigger issue, I think, as, as far as most Africans are concerned, as compared to the, uh, the growth in, in uh, military engagement in Africa. But I think as this community continues to grow, if, if it continues to grow, and there are some indications, actually, it may be slowing down a bit, uh, even in terms of numbers of tourists, the Chinese tourists going to Africa seems to have, have slipped somewhat in the last year or so. But making the assumption that it does grow uh, to some extent in the, in the coming years, it, it will have the inevitable uh, impact of increasing the challenges for Ch- the Chinese government and the Ch- and Chinese embassies all over Africa, as you quite rightly say, the, the embassies often don't even know how many nationals they have in a particular country. When we were researching our book in 2007, everywhere we went, we would visit the Chinese embassy and and ask, well, how many nationals do you have in whatever country we were visiting? and the answer they would give us an answer and inevitably it would be the lowest um... estimate of all the estimates we obtained during our visit in that country because they were only counting on uh... counting the chinese who officially registered at the embassy which oftentimes was a relatively small percentage of the total uh, so they they really often don't have a clue what the numbers are i think they're getting better at it and they're certainly paying more attention to this and they're more concerned about the um, the Chinese presence in a particular country because it's embarrassing when they it turns out there's an incident and they have to evacuate far more than they even knew they had
0: well, there's two sides to the Chinese military angle in Africa, and, and you brought this up in your paper, and I'd like to kind of touch on this. And it's the duplicity that every country kind of talks about, the Americans certainly do, and, and and the Chinese as well, where they say their military engagement is designed to promote peace and stability. Okay? That's fair enough. We get that. And they they go to no end, you know, on, in their propaganda on Xinhua and whatnot to talk about the stabilizing kind of effects of Chinese military engagement. That said... Chinese arms sales to the continent are going up very, very quickly. And although the United States uh, remains the world's largest weapons uh, vendor, uh, the United States tends to sell weapons that are higher in value, such as, you know, aircraft m- missiles and whatnot and drones the Chinese oftentimes sell small arms and those small arms have a particularly devastating effect in places like Africa and the civil conflicts in the DRC in Mali even in South Sudan we there was an embarrassing situation last year where the Chinese said the ambassador in in Juba said we're not going to sell weapons to uh, to either side in the conflict in South Sudan lo and behold uh, 38 million dollars from of Norinco guns show up in South Sudan for the government so talk to us a little bit about about the, the, the flip side of all of this, which is the small arms sales.
2: Well, you've, you've put your finger on a, on a major issue and, and one that has not gotten much attention. Uh, if you look back historically at uh, Chinese arms sales uh, to Africa, or in some cases gifts, although most of them are sales, uh, the whole point is to make money on it. Uh, it was uh, running in the range uh, of, oh, back in the 60s and the 70s, of, of 2 to 3%. Uh, of, of all uh, s- transfers that were going into Africa. It slowly increased over time, and the most recent numbers that I've seen are that China is now uh, transferring about 25% of, of all conventional weapons going into sub Saharan Africa. Now, I make a distinction here between sub Saharan and North Africa because if you once you include Egypt into it, it, it brings the United States much more into the picture. There's a major U.S program supporting Egypt but if you talk only about sub-Saharan Africa 25 percent of all conventional weapons going being transferred into Africa come from China and that does not include small arms and light weapons and the reason it doesn't include that is that we don't have any numbers for that Uh, China is somewhat transparent on conventional weapons and it's fairly easy to monitor them anyway Uh, you cannot monitor small arms and light weapons and the the general belief is that China is a much larger provider of small arms and light weapons than it is conventional weapons. Conventional weapons being everything from, from aircraft to tanks to howitzers and um, anything that more than two people have to uh, operate, basically. And this is having an impact on, in African conflict zones, because increasingly the small arms and light weapons are showing up in places like Darfur, uh, the Eastern Congo, uh, Somalia. And now Western weapons also obviously show up in in these same zones, but that didn't used to be the case so much. That you saw Chinese weapons there, and these are not weapons that are being um, provided or sold to rebel groups. They're they're being, I think, in almost every case, provided to African governments. But then, after some African governments have their favorite rebel groups in in neighboring countries, and they transfer their Chinese weapons or or Western weapons. To these groups, and they show up in the zones, and they're causing a lot of mayhem. Uh, so this is a growing problem, and because Chinese is now such a large provider, uh, it, it's going to have to do more accounting for this. Uh, the, the West has been criticized in the past, but now China is going to be subject to the same criticism. Um,
1: I wonder if we could just uh, take it to this slightly different topic. Um, the The big hype in Chinese foreign policy over the last year or so has been the the um one belt one road initiative um and you know kind of this this has there's almost a, a little mini industry of of writers just churning out you know kind of different different think pieces about the about this initiative um, I was wondering how you read the initiative in in security terms and how you think it'll affect uh... you know kind of Chinese foreign policy generally and to especially towards Africa
2: well it's an interesting question and it's one that i've also been trying to get a handle on and i'm not sure i have one yet i, I think there is clearly a security link when you're talking about the maritime silk road aspect of this which is the component that uh, impacts at least uh, northeastern africa and it seems to have would it seems it would initially anyway only have a significant impact uh, all from about Tanzania north but particularly going through the Suez Canal and i think that's one of the least understood elements of it uh, there's a lot of uh, commercial uh, traffic maritime traffic that goes through the Suez Canal that is going to and from China uh China has uh, fairly extensive interests uh, in the uh, Suez Canal zone and it has recently um, been engaging in uh, an uptick in ship, naval ship visits to the Mediterranean. Uh, it recently had a naval exercise with Russia in the Mediterranean. So you're you're seeing a surprising amount of very recent engagement uh, through the Suez and into the Mediterranean. Uh, whether that is more linked to interests in Europe than it is to North Africa, it's not clear. But the the fact is, it impacts uh, Africa. It certainly impacts Egypt and it has a, a significant uh, a relationship to what's going on in Djibouti and even a little further south, as I say, at least as far south as Tanzania. So the, this is a very uh, interesting development, and it, um, it's clearly on the rise. You're going to hear, see and hear more about this. It's just not clear to me how fast it's going to develop and where it is all going to end.
0: Well, the paper is FOCAC, The Evolving China-Africa Security Relationship by Ambassador David Shin of the Elliott School of International Affairs at George Washington Universities. And i got to say, Ambassador Shin, as scholars go, you are among the, the best out there when it comes to social media. You've got a blog, you've got Twitter. If people want to follow the publication of this paper and where they can find it and also what you're reading and writing these days, what's the best way for them to stay in touch with you?
2: Well, the blog is probably the simplest. The paper is, uh, I just checked the other day, and apparently it's going to be another two weeks before it's actually published uh, by the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch. Um, so it's running a little bit late, but it will be out and um, yeah, it will once it goes uh, out by the Center for Chinese Studies, I'll also put it on the blog. but I'm also working on a number of other issues unrelated to security that will be appearing fairly soon.
0: And what's the blog address just for everybody to find out?
2: if you just put my name in google it's normally the first thing that will show up and that's david
0: shin two n's on the end s-h-i-n-n for everybody who wants to search it up and then also on twitter you're you tweet a little bit don't you
2: uh basically the the twitter is an automatic arrangement where it tweets out every new blog entry.
0: okay very handy there and kobus I, i know your twitter feed isn't automatic what's the best way for people to follow you
1: Um, I'm on Twitter at Staranesque, that's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you'll also see me on our Facebook page. It's Facebook.com slash ChinaAfricaProject.
0: And I'm on Twitter as well at E Olander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R, tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. And of course, if you want to follow this podcast, you can do so just by going to iTunes, type in China Africa, and boom, we'll come up there. Uh, Ambassador Shin, thank you so much for joining us. It was a fascinating discussion, and we look forward to seeing the, the paper when it comes out.
2: My pleasure. Always happy to join you.
0: Great. We'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening.